Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> First off, I apologize for my voice. Um, I actually see a couple of my students in here this morning, and they can attest that this is the best that it's been in over two weeks. Um, and so pray with me that it holds out today um, because I have uh, been struggling a little bit. But I am so excited to be here with you guys and close the book of Exodus. It's been weird <clears throat> because I've gotten used to being here at the Mobile campus about once a month to be able to, to preach here. And I've been at Fairhope for the past couple of months. The last time I was here was July 17th. And, and I say that because I miss you, but then I started thinking that could be a good thing. And the reason why is because today we have to cover 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. And has anybody in here ever had a cell phone plan where you get rollover minutes? I feel like I'm due, right? And so by my count, I have around 180 minutes. So I hope that you packed a lunch. No, I'm kidding. It shouldn't be that painful, almost. Um, but, but I'm so excited to be here. You know, as we came into this story, as we came into the book of Exodus, this is one that we all, those of us who have been part of the church for a while or had a family that uh, read scripture to us or even watched films, the, the story of the Exodus is one that's very familiar to us. I remember even back in Sunday school, seeing on the flannel graph, the little Moses coming in and the burning bush and hearing stories of that in my Sunday school classes. But what has been so astounding is that as we've walked through this book that we're all so incredibly familiar with, there has been blessing after blessing around every single corner. How many of you can say that you've honestly learned a tremendous amount and been convicted and stirred by a lot in this study? Because I know that I can. I know that every single week that I've prepared to teach or listen to Kyle or Jack or Neil or we've prepared in community together, that I keep seeing over and over these shadows of Jesus. And it's been such an amazing blessing to me to be able to go through this and all of this just become new. And I think that's my favorite thing about scripture is that it's living, that it's breathing, that there's no such thing as an old story. That every single time we return back to it, that we're in a different place in our walk with Christ and that we see all new things by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And this has really been proof positive of that. Because a story that we could all recite from the top of our head has been such an amazing blessing. And I've loved being able to walk through this. And so let's go back to the very beginning. Today, the goal is to get like a 30,000 foot view of this. We've made our trek through the forest. We've looked at the trees. We've seen these individual things. But what we want to do today this morning is we want to take this book of Exodus as a giant overview and not just look at it for what it was, but also look at it for what it is. We want to connect the journey in the wilderness that Israel took to our journey in the wilderness today as those who are redeemed in Christ. And so let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go through this. And I hope that today is a blessing for you as it has been for me in preparation. So back at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find that it has its foundations back in the book of Genesis. 
Um, we know that because of one of the main cast of characters. We know that in Genesis, um, we see Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and he takes his family into Egypt because one of his sons, Joseph, has been raised to second in command in Egypt. You guys know that story, right? And so he's part of bringing his family in to escape this drought and this famine that's happening in Canaan. And then when we get to the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see in Exodus 1-7 what has happened to this family. It says this, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And so what we have to remember is that this people that we're talking about, these people of Israel are actually the descendants of this family that we see move from Canaan to Egypt in the book of Genesis. Now, the reason that's important is not because this nuclear family is still alive because they've passed. But what we see is that this continuation of this promise of the Lord has been flowing through time. We see that this family has continued to increase, that, that they've continued to grow, that they've begun to, to multiply and increase. And what this little verse does here in verse seven of chapter one of Exodus is it gives us two very important details into this book. The first is that it tells us a little bit about one of the major characters of the book. And that's this people of Israel, these descendants that, that we see back in the book of Genesis. But even more importantly, this verse 1-7 begins to rewind our mind to the book of Genesis. And it's not just this narrative of Genesis about this family. It's not just about this promise to this family, though that's a major part of it. What it actually begins to do is rewind our minds all the way back to creation. Because whenever we look at that passage, there's some key words there that should begin to trigger something in our mind to roll us back. And that's those words multiplied, that they were fruitful. What do those words make you think of? It makes you think of the creation mandate found in Genesis 1.28. Look at this. It says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so when we read this at the beginning of the book of Exodus, what scripture is beginning to do is take our mind, our heart, and our focus and begin to shift it back to not just the book of Genesis, but creation itself. And when we do this, something very interesting begins to happen in our minds. We naturally begin to compare and contrast these two instances. We, we begin to look at this creation mandate in Genesis, and we begin to look at where these descendants that have this promise are in the book of Exodus, and we start comparing the wording there. We start comparing what's being said, but we also naturally draw a contrast, don't we? We start looking at the things that are different. And some of the things that are different are found in Exodus 1, verses 8 through 22. As we look at those verses, we see that a new Pharaoh has come to power in Egypt. We see that this new Pharaoh doesn't care at all about Joseph or his family. He, he doesn't care what they did. And he actually sees this growth, this being fruitful and multiplying as a danger to Egypt. He sees a problem, and so what does he do? He begins to oppress these people. He enslaves them. He puts them in bondage, and when that doesn't help, when they still continue to flourish and grow, he decides that he is going to put to death every male born 
of this people group. And so he moves to murder. And this is what leads us to the part of the story where we see Moses placed in a basket, which is this type and picture of an ark. And he goes into part of Pharaoh's family. And that's where that part of the story comes from. But what this should do is begin to start making us think of these two instances. And when we do, we find out something. The creation mandate is a lot like the situation that we're in now. Yes, they were to inhabit a land. They're inhabiting a land. Yes, they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And yes, they're being fruitful and multiplying. But the problem is, where does the way that God intended humanity to be begin to speak of oppression? It doesn't. Before the fall, where does God's word say that you are intended to be enslaved? It, it, it doesn't. And so what happens here is that when we look at these things, they begin to, to make our minds start thinking things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Something's wrong. Something's broken. And even looking at those things, as hard as it is to say that slavery and murder aren't the worst two things about this, they're really not. Because what's the worst thing about this? Think back at the creation mandate. Think of what was going on there. God was physically dwelling in the midst of his people and his creation. And now that is not the case. And so when we look at this, we begin to see the sorrow of the situation, don't we? Because what is multiplying? What is being fruitful? What are any of these things that could be going on if God is not there? And our hearts begin to break for what has happened to humanity. And we begin to see the problem. And that's why it's so important as we work through the book of Exodus to begin to follow these echoes back to Genesis, to begin to look back to Genesis at creation, to begin to look at the way that things were created. It's so important because what's going to happen is that we're going to find out the entire context of the book of Exodus in this little section. What is the point of the book of Exodus? To restore what was lost in the garden and serve as a type and shadow of something bigger, mankind's ultimate reconciliation with their God through Christ. That's what this book is pointing to. It's a restoration. And when we revisit the effects of the fall, we can go back to Genesis chapter three, verse eight, and we start seeing what's going on here. Look at verse eight, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Remember, this is right after the fall, right? In the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Now, a lot of theologians look at this, and they, they see that the walking among it, that, that walking along with indicates this relationship. It indicates like ownership. It, it indicates a deep connection with something. But, but I don't know if you've ever noticed this. That, that we take for granted. You know, we, we talk about it all the time, how God walked in the cool of the evening with his creation. But did you know that this is the only time that that's mentioned? It's after the fall when we, when we see this. Now, that doesn't mean that this is the only time it took place. Uh, you know, we can read this and we understand and theologians understand that this was a pattern that probably God had with his creation. And so the question is, why do we wait until the fall to see this detail? And I think the reason why is because it puts such a strong emphasis on what is lost. 
It, it puts such a strong emphasis on what mankind has lost in their decision to turn away from the statutes of the Lord and, and our fall. And when we look at this, it really begins to speak to what we're going to see throughout the rest of uh, the Bible, throughout the rest of history. It's this story of being reconciled to God. And when we see these details, it's interesting that that word cool of the evening can actually be translated wind or breeze. And in the South, like we have a great picture of this. How many of you have ever, and I live so far inland that I don't get as much as you guys, and some of you live closer to the coast than, you know, even here, but you guys know that we sometimes get those 90 plus temperature days with high humidity, and it's miserable, and in the evening, like you can start getting that breeze, and you can just enjoy it. There's something about it that's refreshing. There's something about the coolness of fall down here that, that when we get these cool breezes, these stirring breezes, it makes us appreciate creation a little bit more. Is that just me or does anybody else get that? And so whenever I look at this, for me in my mind, this is what I think of. I think of man was in a perfect place where they could enjoy their creator and enjoy their creation. And then when the wedge of sin came in, all of a sudden there's this wedge, this chasm between them and their creator. And now even our relationship with creation changes in that now we move to a place of toil with creation. And I think of this and I think of what was lost and it's heartbreaking but I think that's the contrast we have to have in our mind as we move into the rest of the story of redemption. We have to remember what was messed up. So with this idea of creation and this picture of relationship in our mind, this brings us to this theme of Exodus that we see. You guys remember early in the book of Exodus when Moses went to Pharaoh, God had given him some instructions, right? And he said, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go so they may what? Worship me. Do you guys ever pay attention to that when we were working through that? So think about it. Whenever we look at this, it's, it's very, very easy for us to say that, that, that they were called to freedom for freedom's sake. But they were called to freedom so that they could live the life the way that God intended. That they could live in a life of worship of Yahweh. And so it's important to see that, this theme that's going to run through Exodus, so that my people may worship me, so that I can dwell with them, so that they can be reconciled in some way to God. And all of this is a grand picture and shadow of what we're ultimately going to see in Christ. So, so how does God do this? How does God begin to work this story of restoration? Well, we move on in the book of Exodus and we get to the section on the plagues. We look at these plagues that are, that are sent by God. They're the works of God. They're these terrible and marvelous works of God. And God used these to bring Israel to their freedom. But this is where we begin to really see that there's a much, much bigger purpose in this. You guys that were with us as we worked through these 10 plagues, you know that they weren't just to bring freedom to Israel, were they? They were also to bring judgment on the religious and political system of um, Egypt, right? Remember that, that all that these plagues did is that they shone a giant spotlight on the inadequacy of the gods of Egypt. 
They, they shine a spotlight on the inadequacies of Pharaoh and that socio-economic political system. Nothing that Egypt could do, nothing that Egypt's gods could do could stop the works of Yahweh. And at the same time, while showing this inadequacy, they were showing God's adequacy, his power, his majesty, his might. And so when we see this, we see that there's something else going on behind the scenes. It's not just that God is using these to move Israel from a physical location of bondage to a physical location of freedom. What God is doing is he's beginning to transform their mind. Because it's not just important that Israel is out of Egypt, it's important that Egypt is also out of Israel. And so what we see is this process of sanctification beginning to take place. And then we get to the 10th plague. You guys remember what the 10th one was? Death of the firstborn, right? Remember that the nine leading up to this, what did Israel have to do to be spared of their effects? Nothing. Goshen was spared. You know, when we look at turning water to blood, frogs, lice, wild animals, pestilence, boils, thunderstorms of hell and fire, locusts, darkness for three days, Goshen was spared. But when we get to death of the firstborn, Israel was not automatically spared, were they? What did they have to do? Well, they, they had to take the lamb. They had to apply the blood of the perfect lamb to the doorpost of their life. And we see these details here. But sometimes what we need to do is we need to stand back from the details. Every detail matters. Sometimes we need to stand back from the details and look and see what God was doing in it. And what was he doing? He was bringing them to a place where their faith had feet. They were responding to what God called them to do. They, they, they were doing what God called them to do. See, all of this is, is the work of God. God is doing this. But in part of this sanctification process, in part of this transformation process that's going on, what he's doing is leading them to a place where they have dependence on him in obedience. See, there's a piece there that we need to make sure that we don't miss in this whole story. This is a work of God, but that does not excuse obedience. There's that peace there. So he's moving them through this. And you know, the Feast of Passover is what remembers this. The, the Feast of Passover is what remembers this, this provision from the Lord to spare Israel from the death angel, right? This is probably one of the biggest events in all of Israel. And the reason why is because this is the event that, that symbolizes what their relationship with God would be. That, that they would be his free people, his people that worship him, his people that proclaim his name to the world. This is the event that sets them apart as different. These, th this event makes them his people. And, and so the 10th plague comes, the 10th plague goes. Pharaoh orders their freedom they begin to go. We know that Pharaoh's going to chase after them. But God has already said something before this point. You know, sometimes in the book of Exodus, we see some of these details kind of jump around. And we can't forget what happened earlier to an event that happens later. And so whenever we get to this point that Passover occurs, that, that they're free, that they're released, we can't forget something that happened way back in chapter 3. 
And what happened in chapter three, verses 20 through 22, God says, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it. And after that, he'll let you go. So this is something that God's doing to bring their freedom. But watch this. This is an interesting little detail. Verse 21, and I will give these people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, remember, the point of this book is to restore what was lost in Genesis. So what on earth does this plunder have to do with that? Why, why would they be leaving with, with, with pockets full of gold? Why would they leave with this plunder? Why would they leave with these spoils? Well, the reason why is because this is part of how this plan is going to take place. This is the first piece that we begin to see that this is something God is going to do. This isn't Israel getting to God. Make no mistake. This is God coming to them. He is going to provide everything they need because this is his plan, not theirs. So take that little piece of information, hang on to it for a minute because we're going to come back to it. So they have all of these spoils. They pass through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army follows after them. We have this amazing story where the water crashes back down on the Egyptian army and wipes out all the people. And, 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 there, and there's this amazing story there of God freeing Israel from their oppressors, like we talked about during worship. But right before that Red Sea experience, there's a little detail there that's going to come up over and over and over, and we can't forget it. Because what it actually does is it actually changes the theme of the book of Exodus a little bit. I don't know if you caught this or not, because remember the theme of Exodus is, is God restoring what was lost. It's, it's God making a way for him to dwell among his people, for God freeing his people to worship him. But what changes right before crossing the Red Sea? There's a detail added that God is going to do this in spite of an unfaithful people. That God will remain faithful in spite of an unfaithful people. Tommy, where do you get that from? Exodus 14, 10 through 12, look at this. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Guys, they had just seen these miraculous works of the Lord. Remember at Passover, they had just gotten these instructions and said, what the Lord says we'll do. They just followed through with all of these things. They had seen the miraculous works of God. They've left with pockets full of gold. They had left with all of these things. They get to the Red Sea and they're like, well, this is over. That was fun. It, they'd seen all of this stuff, and what do they do? They begin to grumble. They begin to, to get frustrated. They begin to get upset. And you may say, well, you know, that's kind of understanding because there's, a, there's a, an army there and, and stuff. And, and I, I might too. I, I know my human nature. 
But this goes on and on and on. What happens when they get thirsty? Exodus 15, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what will we drink? They grumbled. They're, they're losing their faith. They're, they're, they've lost their, their idea of what God has done. What happens when they're hungry? Exodus 16, two through three. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt? When we sat down by the meat pots, we ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What did they do? They grumbled. What happened when God didn't work on their timeline? Exodus 32, 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. What do they do? They grumble. They fall into idolatry. This is a grumbling, complaining, unfaithful people. And that's what makes the Lord's response all the more miraculous. Because when we see these people, we think, how would we respond to someone like that? How would we respond to our kids when they're like, I'm going to starve to death? No, you're not. I fed you every day. I'm going to do it again today. Right? We, 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 would, we would look at that grumbling and we would approach it differently. But how did God approach it? Watch this. He uses the Red Sea that they grumbled at the shores to swallow up their enemies. He turns the bitter waters of Mara that they grumbled about to show them how he can make the most out of any bitter situation and turn it sweet. He used the time of their need and hunger to show that he brings provision and their needs from heaven. When they fall into idolatry, he shows his faithfulness by relenting from his holy anger and not destroying those people who are willing to repent. And so when we see unfaithfulness, God simply meets it with faithfulness. That is such good news today. And why is that such good news? Because I know where I can fall. I know what happens to me sometimes, and God does this still because of who he is. That is good news, but there's such a bigger picture to this. God is doing this for a specific reason. I don't know if you caught this as we went through it or not, but pay attention. In every place that they doubt, God is showing his faithfulness as part of their sanctification. Remember removing Egypt from them. Guys, it's hard to change our minds and our hearts. I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit. The transformation that brings. But see, their their entire life, they had known a system and God was breaking that system and breaking that system and breaking that system, saying, you can trust me. You can depend on me. You can lean into me. This is my plan. I've got this. I'm gonna show you every step of the way my faithfulness and goodness And that is such good news because this all ties into the theme of restoring that type of relationship that was lost in the garden. Such a beautiful, beautiful picture. And this is the same God that David writes Psalm 145 about. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. That is the God that we serve. 
And we move from this point where God is showing his faithfulness over and over. We move um, into this place where God brings the, uh, this covenant, the expectations of the covenant in the 10 commandments or the 10 words. Here, Yahweh is telling them what they are going to look like as his people, that, that they're gonna be different, that their relationship is going to cause them to be different people as they bear the name of the Lord. Their life is going to look different than the world around them. But what God does through this whole process is that he's also showing the character of who he is. You've got to remember this, guys. They are being introduced to Yahweh at every step of this walk. God is revealing who he really is to them. That the God of all creation literally thinks enough of man. And, and, and I, don't, I don't get this because the story's about him but cares enough for our relationship with him that he would be willing to step into where we are so that we have the opportunity to see who he is. And, and I don't understand it, but that's such a beautiful picture. And it's the only way that we can know him. And so what's being established as we look at Exodus 20 verses three through 17 with these 10 commandments is we're seeing over and over that Israel is being called to be a peculiar people. They're called to be a, a different people. They're supposed to be different than the world around them. And so through the giving of the 10 words, we're seeing that they are to look different. And we also see through this whole process, the giving of the 10 words, that God in his graciousness provides for them a mediator. Remember, Israel can only come so far, Right? But God gives a mediator to bring words to them, to talk to them, to give God's words to them. And so this is another amazing piece of grace of God. And what we're seeing is that over and over, these steps taken by God to build a bridge to cross that chasm. You know, every time I think about the, the book of Exodus, it's been weird. And I'm, I think I may have said this before at this campus. I know I did in Fairhope. And I know that I'm dating myself. I'm giving my age a little bit. But whenever I look at this, I, for some reason, the Point of Grace song comes to mind every single time. There's a bridge to cross the great divide. There's a cross the bridge the great divide. Um, that, that divide of sin is real. It's huge. But, but that's why we're able to stand back in awe of what God did. Because of what we did, there's this chasm, but God at every step comes to bridge that chasm. And this is where it's important to really grab hold to the idea that we're regaining what was lost at creation. Because a few weeks ago, we talked about the tabernacle. And remember, this is part of the mediator job of Moses, that he's getting these instructions from God on the mountain, and that he's going to bring these down. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how the tabernacle can be seen as like a very real restoration of Eden. If you guys didn't talk about that here, if you have the app or you can go back through the sermons, Jack talked about it some in Fairhope. But this is a restoration of that, that this is the place where God and man can dwell together, a place where they can reunite, a place where relationship can be had, a place where sins against God can be atoned for. And so all of these instructions given to Moses are part of that. And it's part of God's grace that it's his plan that he has. And you guys remember, as we worked through this the first time, we talked about how every step of this, the tabernacle, the consecration of the priest, the duties of the priest, every bit of this is covered with the shadows of Jesus. 
I'm not gonna take the time to go back through all of that this morning because that took us a while the first time through. Um, but make sure that if you weren't here for those, you go back and listen to those. But we can't forget what's happening in this exact moment. God's provided a mediator, right? God's speaking to the mediator, Moses on the mountain. God is telling the mediator the process by which this tabernacle will be built so that God can dwell among his people. And what are the people doing at the base of the mountain in the camp? They're falling into idolatry. See, while God is giving the directions for the construction of this tabernacle, they are literally taking the materials that are in their pocket that they left Israel with, I mean, Egypt with, that they're supposed to fashion the ark with, they're supposed to fashion the lampstand with, they're supposed to, they were given to them by God in order to worship him. And what they're doing is they're taking them out of their pockets. They're taking the earrings off their sons and their daughters. They're taking off this jewelry. They're taking these things that were intended to serve Yahweh and they're creating idols with them. This shows the depths of the depravity of man. This shows what we are capable of as people, that, that we would take gifts designed to serve and honor God and use them for selfish ambition. We will be coming back to that, I promise. As a result of this action, God says that he'll destroy the people. You guys remember that? God says to Moses, I'll, I'll just start over with you. I'll make a people out of you. But Moses doesn't say, that's a good idea, let's do that. I'd like to be like Abraham. No, he doesn't. What does he do? He comes to God with three requests. And we have to remember that these requests come out of a heart of repentance. Remember the status of Israel at this point. They're heartbroken because God has said, I'm not gonna go among you. And they're literally heartbroken. And when Moses goes before God in the tent of meeting, which he pitched outside of where all of the people were far away, he says to God, don't leave me. He, he says to God, go with these people. Go with us. And he says, show me your glory. What we see here is the mediator pleading on behalf of, the sin, of these sinful people. And it's an amazing picture because this comes out of a cry of the heart of the people that actually finally, I think, understand who they are. Because in this moment, it's like they're saying that because, because they've realized if God's not dwelling with us, who are we? I feel like there's a point where they've understood why they have come to this place of freedom. They've come to this place of freedom to worship Yahweh. And if Yahweh's not there, then who are they? They understand that their identity was completely wrapped up in God. And if God says, I will not dwell among you, then what's the point of all of this? And we see a genuine heart of repentance from Israel. And as a result, what does God say to Moses? God, stay with me. God says, I will. Moses says, God, go with us. And God says, I will. And Moses says, show me your glory. And he says, as much as you can stand. And this is where he hides him in the cleft and he passes by. I find it so amazing. Moses said, show me your glory. This is the guy that was in the presence of God on the mountain. This is the guy, remember, that went up on the mountain with the elders and they literally saw like the pavement under God's feet. And I think that's what's so amazing is that Moses had seen so much of who God is, but yet he knew that he had only seen the ground that he walks on. 
He knew there was so much more to him and his request was show me your glory. And God says as much as you can stand. And for me, that makes me think, where is my heart in this? Is my heart, God, show me your glory. I want God to look at me and say, as much as you can stand. I want to see that and I want to want to see that. And I hope that you caught what I just said there. Because there are moments in my life where my eyes move from where they should be. And it's so convicting to me to see this. And if I get stuck here, we'll run out of time. So I, I, gotta, I gotta keep going. So, so what's happened is that these people have seen their folly. We, we see that God is with them. And then after that, we see the actual construction of the temple, right? We're up to just a couple weeks ago now. See, I've covered two years in like 30 minutes. It's amazing. Um, and so we see the actual construction of the tabernacle. We see that God had provided all of these materials for them to do it. And we remember from this that God designed it. God planned it. God did it. God provided it. God does it. Not them. This is not a plan for man to get to God. Because if it was, we'd be just like every other religion on the face of the planet. Did you know that Christianity, that's why we're not a religion. Religion is all about man getting to God. Christianity is about the relationship that God desires to have with his people, and he came to us. And so this is God's plan. It reminds us that it's always God coming down to us. And the book ends with the presence of God resting in the tent. The people are in a place of obedience in this time and rejoicing. And we end this book with like this amazing picture of what God has done. It's an incredible story, right? It's such a great story. All of this is truly amazing, but we have to remember something about the book of Exodus that if we're not careful, we'll accidentally forget at the end. And that's that the book of Exodus ends in a gigantic already not yet. Think about this. Have they inherited their promised land? Where are they worshiping God? In the wilderness. Where's the tabernacle right now? It's in the wilderness. See, they are rejoicing. They are worshiping. They are living with God dwelling among them in an already not yet. See, God made a way for them to worship him in the status that they were in. But they're not home yet. They're not to this promised place. They're not where they should be whenever we look at what was lost in the fall. But there's one thing assured that if God promises it, it will be. And that's what's an already not yet. God will do this, but that faith has not become sight yet. And it's so important to see that the, because of God, who God is, because of who God is, every promise is yes and amen, but they don't see it yet. We see in this moment of people who have been called out by God. He's with them. He's faithful to them. They in this moment are faithful to him, but they're still in the wilderness. And when we think about that this way, we see how this is not just the story of Israel in the wilderness. It's our very story too. Think about this just a minute. There's so much application here. 
Think about this. Like Israel, we're a people who were once in bondage to sin, which was our Egypt, but we've been called out. See this in John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave, Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. So just like them, we are people who were once in bondage of sin, bondage to sin, but have been called out. Beloved, we have to remember that our bondage has been broken too. Next, we see that like Israel, our bondage has been broken by a miraculous work of God that crushes everything we once depended on. See, instead of plagues, this was done by the work of Christ, that, that he came into this world, that he flipped everything on its head, that he took our status quo and flipped it upside down, talking about things like the first will be last and, and that we're to serve others and that we're supposed to lay down our lives. And he flipped everything that we had on its head. So it may have looked different than the plagues, but it was still a miraculous work of God that brought us to this place. Like Israel, we've been called out of sin to be a distinct people, set apart for his purpose. We're to be different than the world around us. Colossians 3, 5, 17 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In those you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. It goes on to say, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It goes on to say, and let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. See, we're called to be a distinct people. Every single Sunday morning that Kyle gets up here to preach, what does he say right off the bat? First Peter 2, 9. He says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a distinct people. The Bible speaks often about the status of our citizenship, which led Charles Spurgeon to say this. If our citizenship be in heaven, then we are aliens here. We're strangers and foreigners, pilgrims and sojourners in the earth, as all of our fathers were. So just like Israel, we're called to be this distinct people. But look at number four. It says, like Israel, when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful to us. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, he died knowing the status that we were in, knowing who we were. And, and to go a step further, just like Israel, I don't know if you have this and you have this as part of your testimony of the grace of God in your life, but I know that for me, I look at the resources that I've been given by God in order to worship him, and I don't always use them to worship him. These hands that were designed to be the hands of the gospel, of the work of the gospel, sometimes don't do the work of the gospel. These feet that are supposed to be the feet of ministry don't always do that. When I think of my ears and my eyes and my lips and everything that I have, my resources, my money, all of these things, every bit of it has been given to me so that I may worship God. But so often I take these things and I fashion my own little idol out of them so that they can serve me. But yet when I do that, God is faithful because of who he is. 
And that's good news to me. And I'm thankful for that. I understand what has been afforded me through Christ. But when I look at that, I have to understand that that does not forgive personal responsibility. I still have an obligation. When I look at this, John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You can go back to that entire section in Colossians that we, Colossians 3 that we read some of earlier. And then you get to Romans 5, 20 through 6, 4, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So then shall we continue on sinning? By no means. By no means. Why should we not continue on in sin? Because just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so there's that amazing picture there of the grace of God and personal responsibility, that tension there. And yes, it's both and. And I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for the graciousness of God. And the next, like Israel, when we face adversity and struggle, he is with us. First Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation is given to us, that he hasn't already given us a way out. Hebrews 13, six says, so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Deuteronomy 31, eight, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Think about all of the adversities that you faced in your life. How often has God done exactly in you what he did to Israel in the wilderness? Whenever you find yourself grumbling and, and, and doubtful, how many of you look at that situation a year, two, three later, and you point back to the testimony in that moment? That God is constantly shaping and moving and walking us through this process of sanctification, just like Israel Next, just like for Israel, God provides the tabernacle. Uh, understand that our salvation is not something that, that we, we, we do. It's not because we're good enough. It's not because we get to God. It's because of something that he did. It's his plan. He provided the true tabernacle in Jesus, the way by which he may dwell among and with us. And so we have to understand that it is his work. Next, just like Israel, we will inherit our promised land. Again, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Matthew 10, 22, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You could take the whole end of the book of Malachi if you wanted to and talk about the great and glorious day of the Lord. 2 Timothy 2, for if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. John 14, two and three, in my father's house are many rooms. I go and prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I'd let you know but I will come back for you, right? That if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll take you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. John 5, 24, he who believes in him who sent me has eternal life. We see it in Romans 6, 23, John eleven twenty five. 25. We could go on and on and on about this, but we will inherit our promised land because of who God is. And then just like Israel, we live in an already not yet. We will see this full restoration of what was lost in the fall. It is guaranteed. It is guaranteed, but it's not yet. See, just like Israel, our bondage of sin has been broken. We have a promised destination, but we are not home yet. But praise be to God 
that he has allowed a way for us to worship him and him to walk with us in the in-between. And we rejoice in that. So when we look at this book of the Exodus, the book of Exodus, it doesn't really end at Exodus 40, does it? You think, think about the story uh, uh, of Exodus. Like, it, it continues on. We see the wanderings in the book of Numbers. We see the laying out of the sacrificial system in Leviticus. We see um, God's faithfulness and the call to Israel's faithfulness in the book of Deuteronomy. We see all of these things that continue on. And our lives are part of that. See, in our wilderness of life, God has provided that means which we may worship him. He's provided a mediator in Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. He's provided the Holy Spirit that he might dwell in our very midst. And at this moment, we have a promise of what is and what is to come. And so when I look at the story of the Exodus, for me, it takes me to a question that's found all the way in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Those of you familiar with this passage know that I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but you can go back and read all of Deuteronomy 30. It's an amazing chapter. But it says, see, I've set before you today life and good and death and evil. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. See, that is the question that we are led to in this whole story of the Exodus, this whole story of Israel moving to their promised land. There is this question of will you choose life? And that's the question that we have today. We've laid out the gospel through this book. And we're left with this question in this room. Will you choose life? Will you choose abundance in Christ? Will you choose his faithfulness? Will you choose his goodness? Will you choose the tabernacle of Christ that bridges the chasm between sin and man? Will you choose the better Moses, our mediator in Christ? What will you do with this book? What will you do with his grace? The Bible says that today can be the day of your salvation. Will you bend your knee? Will you bow your head to the lordship of Jesus? Will today be the day that you're freed from your Egypt of sin by the miraculous works of the Son, so that you may worship him the rest of your days in this wilderness? Now, today we're going to take some time together um, and, and take communion together. Um, such a beautiful way to end this study of Exodus, but to reflect on the grace of God through sending his son to us. Now at Mars Hill, um, we do allow um, anyone that is a believer that, that is redeemed to take of communion with us. But the Bible is very, very clear that this is for those who are redeemed, who have trusted Christ. And so it is exponentially more important that you take of communion, that you take of the body and the blood of Christ spiritually before you come up and take the symbol that we have. The Bible is also very clear that in taking this, that you need to examine your life, that you need to ask the Holy Spirit to examine your life and find if there's any unconfessed sin in you. 
and, and take time to, to reflect on that and to ask God to reveal those things to you and that, that you're able to come and take this with a clean conscience. And so this morning, what we're gonna do together is I'm gonna take some time and pray for us. I'm gonna let you take some time and ask the Holy Spirit to examine you, to confess any sins that you have, be thankful for his faithfulness in that because remember where we fall, his faithfulness still abounds. And then come and take of communion together as a family with a rejoicing heart of all that Christ has done. So let's pray, and then whenever the Lord releases you to do so, um, you can come and take of the elements. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I know there's so much there. <clears throat> but Lord, as we've studied Exodus, if nothing else, it's been a beacon of light on your faithfulness to us. So Lord, I pray that we live in that, that we move in that, that we breathe in that. And Lord, I pray that as we take communion together as a family this morning, that we have such joy in the provision that you give of your son, that we do not struggle to get to you, but you came to us. Lord, let us be thankful in your plan and in your provision. Lord, I ask that you forgive us where we failed you and that we do not use your grace as a reason to continue living in a way that's not pleasing to you. Because Lord, we know ultimately that our whole life that you are shaping and molding us into the image of your son and that the transformation that is brought in our life is a result of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask that our eyes and our ears be open to that leading. Lord, let us use all resources that you've given us to worship and honor you. Let our hands and feet do the work of the gospel. Let our lips speak the words of the gospel. Lord, I thank you so much for all of who you are and what you've taught us in this time. In the name of your son, Christ, I pray these things. Amen.